Good morning, everybody. Let me pray, and then we'll um, look at that together. Dear God, thank you so much for these words of yours. We pray that you might shape us by them in Jesus' name. Amen. Tali, it's really ruining my symmetry here, having you move that chair over. Oh, it's perfectly fine, but just I'm just looking at it going, ah, I can't handle it. I'm too ordered a personality, obviously. I can't, I can't deal with it, uh, which is why I'm good at these puzzles, uh, which um, that was a nice segue, wasn't it? Uh, which is a spot the difference puzzle, all right? Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you can help me with this. Can you spot the differences? Yes, go ahead, call them out. The little bush in the background, that one. The flower. The top left cloud. The tree. This is really, really hard doing this with a clicker while you're saying things. The bush, the tree. Which one? Um, <laughs> all right, so you can see there's some differences, right? Fair enough. I think there's 12 altogether. I'm going to change it before too long so you don't... Um, who's like, who can't handle not knowing all 12? Anyone? Just put your hand up. Yeah, Emma. Okay. Christy, a few of us. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, probably me too. That's why I didn't write down what they were. So I wouldn't know, and then I couldn't tell you, and we wouldn't spend hours here debating um, if we could find them all or not. So, uh, but these little puzzles, I'm just changing it for those personalities like me who can't handle it. Um, these puzzles are all about picking out the fine detail, right? You have the picture there, and you look at it, and you say, well, what's the difference? You pick out the fine detail, and it's fun, because it's not, well, for some of us, that's fun. For others, you're like, what? These are the worst things ever. Uh, but... Often in life, uh, things can be the other way around. You can be so focused on the fine detail that you miss out on the bigger picture. You heard the expression, I'm sure, you lose sight of the forest because of the trees. You heard that one? And that's saying, isn't it, that you're focusing on the fine detail in life and you lose sight of the bigger picture. Today, we're continuing in Mark, as we've heard, and we're coming to Mark 13. And what we're going to be looking at here is the bigger picture what things are, and what things are causing us to lose sight of it. So, if you brought your own Bible, that's fantastic. If you wouldn't mind having it open, um, we're going to have a look together at Mark chapter 13 uh, and see what the bigger picture is and maybe think about what things cause us to lose sight of it. Um, and to start off there, Mark 13, we're looking at verses 1 and 2 and 32 to 37. Verse 1, we see there, and as he came out of the temple. It's a fairly um, big phrase, actually, in the context of Mark. You might recall we've been looking at Mark and we've seen how he doesn't it's actually a really well woven together story. He's not just banging different random accounts together. He's actually telling us from birth to death of Jesus something very significant. And we, we, he's crafted little um, things together to help us see other things. In this situation here, it's Jesus leaving the temple for the final time. Okay? Um, has anyone got a non-ESV translation in front of them? Brent, what does yours say there? As Jesus was leaving the temple. So in, our, in my one it says, as he came out. It's probably a little bit better to say as he was leaving the temple. He's leaving the temple not to return to it, okay? Um, it's fairly significant because we've seen him predict his, predict his death a few times. He's had that confrontation with the Jewish religious authorities. He's been in the temple just now, teaching in the temple, and explaining to them what he really came for, which they're not really wanting to hear. And he's demonstrated their lack of understanding about what God wants from them. Now he leaves the temple, the final break, he doesn't come back to it. Um, does anyone know who built the temple that he's leaving? It's not a simple question, so it's okay if you don't know. Not Solomon, no. Yes, King Herod, well done. So the original temple was built by whom? I think you all got this right. So Solomon. Solomon built the temple back about a thousand, let's say a thousand um, BC, let's say that. And somebody knocked it down, the Babylonians, 587. They came along, it was in the Bible, we're told it's a... Um, punishment for the people rejecting God's ways. 
the Babylonians come in, they conquer Israel, wipe the temple flat, okay? Somebody rebuilds it. Who? Not yet Herod. That's just in case you're wondering. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Yeah, okay, I'll take any of those names. That's fine. Um, in about 550, they get given a bit of a grant or a license to go back, and I think they get cashed up to go and build the temple. They build it. How does it compare to Solomon's temple? In terms of grandeur. Pitiful. It's this little pathetic little thing, okay? It's this tiny little temple. 25 BC, King Herod. He is known as the builder. He loves building big projects, okay? And he embarks on one of the larger construction projects of the first century before Christ. Uh, one ancient writer describes the temple that he built as a striking spectacle. In fact, he built around the temple. He expanded it and made it grandiose, uh, grand and glorious. Uh, one writer saying, it's a great building project, says, you have not seen a great building until you have seen this temple. There you go. Significant building. He used big blocks of stone weighing over half a ton, all right, 10 meters long, like as big as this room, 10 meters by whatever the dimensions here are. Okay, one block of stone that size was uh, used, and that just for the retaining wall on the side, because they had to chock up the side of the mountain so they could expand the territory of it. He, um, he, he built it so it could fit 12 football fields inside. Here's like a representation. It doesn't do any justice to the size of the thing. It was gigantic, all right? It was huge, topped with um, gold and silver and crimson and purple colors, so it looked like the rising of the sun coming up. It was a beautiful and grand building that was built. And the point of the temple was what? It was to represent God's presence with his people. That was the point. And so they're in this beautiful building here. And the disciples look at it. And what do they say? They say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Inference, isn't God amazing? Because who are these disciples of Jesus, these close followers? They are hicks from the backwater of Galilee. And they're in the big city for the first time. And they see the temple for the first time. And they're like, this thing is truly a sign of God's presence. Who could stand against him? To which Jesus replies in crushing tones, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Jesus points them back to the big picture. Now, um, there's a, a parent's nightmare that played out recently um, in a museum in Shanghai. It was in May. Uh, a man by the name of Miguel Arribas had spent 500 hours making the world's largest glass-blown sculpture. He built a Cinderella-style castle out of glass, and he presented it as a gift to the Shanghai Museum of Glass in 2016 to commemorate the fifth anniversary of that museum. It's a beautiful, intricate structure. He made it with um, 500,000 glass loops. It weighed 60 kilograms. It, the spires on the top here are made out of 24 karat gold. It's actually quite nice, worth about 65 grand as well. Our parents' worst nightmare has played out at the museum. When you go to the museum, as a parent of small children, what is your worst nightmare? They will break something. Now, if you have young children, and there's the Museum of Glass, is that a destination you should be frequenting, do you think? <laughs> oh, I would Okay, uh, 
All right, so you don't want them to touch anything. You don't want, the, you don't want anything to get broken, do you? Um, and you say that because of what happened in this museum in May. There's two kids, they're playing in the museum. They have knocked over this master... They're not looking at the glass sculptures, are they? They're just playing in the museum. They've knocked over this masterpiece and they have completely destroyed it. It's a sad and disappointing and gut-wrenching moment, especially if you are the parent of those two children. Um, but as sad and gut-wrenching and disappointing as that is, it is nowhere near as disappointing as it would have been for the Jews when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. This enormous, majestic structure representing God's presence with his people, these upgrades that have been done to it, it must surely give them some hope. God is going to intervene. God is going to save his people. Jesus say to them, Jesus says, it's going to get knocked down. And he's right. In 66 AD, the, uh, the Jewish um, nation rebel against the Roman Empire and they, they fight back and say, we, we want to reclaim our territory. And four years later, the Roman legions march in, flatten everything, including the temple. 79 AD, Emperor Vespasian builds the Colosseum in Rome. And there is some people who suggest that some of the building blocks of that Colosseum were some of those huge big blocks used in the temple, right? Not one stone left remaining. Um, and you can see what's going on here. There's this nationalistic pride in the temple, right? Here's God's presence with us. This is our sign of his um, victory. And what happens with that? Well, it leads to destruction and oppression. Jesus says, no, no, you think that's impressive. That won't last. God has something far more impressive. Through the destruction of his own body, he pays the price for sin. When they put him on trial, they say, he said he'd destroy the temple and build it in three days. In that situation, he wasn't talking about the temple there. He was talking about the temple of his body, representing God's presence with his people. That's how we draw near to God, through Jesus, full access, victory one, right? Now, that's the big picture. But we can miss the big picture, like the disciples, by seeing the grand achievements and accomplishments and the things that have value put on them. Now, just think for me for a minute. You've got to use your brain here, sorry. But just think for me. What are the things that our world would see as impressive? What are the things that our world would see as impressive? Or as a big accomplishment? A discovery. Yep, a new discovery. Yes. Walking on the moon. Yep, not bad. What about uh, something that you might hope to accomplish? Well, not that you, but your peers might hope to accomplish in their lives. What would they see as an accomplishment? Say again. CEO of a big company. Yeah, COVID-19 vaccine. I thought you were going to say just flying again one day. But okay, that'll do. I'll take that one too. Um, they sort of go together, don't they? Um, all right. Yeah, what else? Yeah, your dreams, yes. Paying off your mortgage. Yeah, yeah, that final one. Bang, it's done. Oh, how good would that be? Um, haven't even taken one out yet. But okay, one day. <laughs> I've, got, I've got two dreams that I get through, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> yep. I can have yours. This is very quickly deteriorating into me taking on lots of debt here. And um, unlike Jesus, I can't pay all that debt. So that's not going to work, is it? Gee, that's a nice segue, Craig, again. Okay, yeah, what else? What other accomplishments are there? There's so many accomplishments, aren't there? And we know in our heads that those things are not the ultimate goal. But we can get sucked into living that way, can't we? Because, you know, the routine of life, if you have a 30-year mortgage and you're 10 years into it, you've got 20 years left. Suddenly you've developed a plan. I'm going to get through this in the next 60 years. I can do this and this and this, and that'll get me through it. And then life becomes consumed with those things. And you're taking on a bit of extra work or you're, uh, you're scrimping and saving here. And it's easy to get caught up in those things and start seeing the trees and miss out on the forest. Because we're not made to live for that alone, are we? 
We're not created for those accomplishments, as grand as they are. I'm not, not denying them. Jesus didn't say the temple's a piece of junk, did he? He just said it's not permanent, much like all these things in our lives. Now, I want to show you a picture, and I want you to tell me, what do you see in this picture? What is the marking here? Who is that? Who said it? What did you say? Jesus. All right, who sees that? Anyone? Can, come on, if you try to see it, can you see it? Okay, fair enough. Uh, it's uh, a Brazilian man was um, pruning his tree branches in his backyard with a chainsaw, and halfway through this branch, his chainsaw broke. And so he put his chainsaw down and got his manual saw, and his mate came over, and they finished the job off. And as they finished it, his mate saw the pattern, and they're like, well, look at this. It's an image of Jesus in our tree branch. So taken were they by this image, they photographed it and put it there on social media for comments to see what people would say. One person says, this is a sign, read the Bible. Another man says, perfect representation, God manifests in all forms. Now, as exciting as that is, uh, we come back to Mark here and we see Jesus talking about when he comes back, all right? One thing I'm pretty sure of, he's not going to come back via a splodge on a tree branch, is he? It's probably not going to be that way. Um, However, as that Facebook user pointed out, we should be prepared. It's a sign. Okay, well, it might not be a very good sign, but we should be prepared, shouldn't we? We should be thinking of when the end will come because verse 32, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. Now, of course, people claim to know. Go to Wikipedia, type in second coming of Christ, and you get a page with a lot of predictions that have been made over the years. A lot of them. And they're all out of date, right? And then it gives you the ones that are yet to happen and yet to go out of date. Because they will, won't they? A lot of answers out there, but who knows? No one knows. Not even who? Not even the Son. Not even Jesus. As a side note here, it's actually uh, an important verse for us to understand God, okay? Um, Because one of the things that we have to understand about God is that he's three persons in one, right? The Trinity, okay? And I very rarely talk about the Trinity in my sermons, all right? Because I I 100% believe in it, but don't get me wrong on that front. However, there's only so much we can glean about it from the Bible, and we can confuse ourselves. But one thing that we say is that they are three distinct persons. One God, three distinct persons, right? So Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not like the Father just sort of came onto earth as the Son. They're actually different and yet the same. And this helps us understand that because the Son doesn't know what the Father knows. See that? They have different roles, all that sort of thing. Um, Jesus, all man, all God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. If you're getting worried now and you can't understand that, I've got some more news for you. You don't know the last day either. And that doesn't matter. You don't need to know either of those things, okay? But what we do know is that it will come. It will come. Look at verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Okay, so the story here is quite clear. The master's on holidays and the servants have been left behind. What should they be doing? Now, if I was to ask you specific jobs, just make them up. They're not given, so it's fine. What should they be doing? Let's, let's go for five specific jobs they should be doing. Feeding the animals, okay. Cleaning, sweeping the floors, let's go with that specific. Yep, what else? Cooking, preparing a meal for the master's return. Yep, what else? 
Washing up. Yes. Gardening. I like it. That's good. Five jobs they're going to be doing. Let's think of two servants, okay? Let's call one the good servant, and they're doing everything in anticipation of the master's return at any time. And the other one's like, well, we don't know when he's coming. Let's think of that one for a minute. How are they approaching the cleaning, the sweeping of the floor? Not so well. Frankly, they look at it and they go, might not do that today because I don't know when he's going to come back. And if I do it today, he's on a long journey. I'm just going to have to do it tomorrow and then the day after. In fact, I, but if I just do it at the end of the week, one sweep, all mess gone. Right? That's what they're thinking. Same with the, the, um, the gardening. Same deal, right? Oh, I'll just pull out the weeds at the end. The um, feeding of the animals. Oh, they're going to get a bit hungry. Who cares? Oh, they might have to do that a bit more often, okay? <laughs> the cooking. Oh, it's a waste of food to have it ready for when he comes back. They won't worry about that. And whatever the fifth one was, don't know. Um, the cleaning. Oh, the cleaning. Thank you. Sorry. Yep. Again, same. No, washing. Was it the washing? Uh, I won't wash his sheets yet because he won't be home. So I won't be able to put them on. Do you know what? I could do it. Or I could watch Netflix all day and do it tomorrow. That's what they say, right? Because I don't know when he's coming. Now, the other one says, I don't know when he's coming. So I'll be ready just in case he comes home any minute. You can see the difference, right? It's kind of easy for us to fall into that same trap as Christians. We, we, can, we can think, you know, we don't know when he's coming. So the things that we know are important, the big picture things, I'll, I'll get to those a bit later because I don't know when he's coming back. But maybe under that kind of attitude, there's a misconception that when Jesus returns, it interrupts all the good things that we have in life. Maybe there's a misconception there that life is really good, and when he comes back, we miss out on doing all these good things. It's a misconception because the things that we have that we can do for the Lord are actually even better. Now we're having the hors d'oeuvres. The, the feast is on the way, right? We've got to prepare ourselves for the feast. Don't skip the hors d'oeuvres and hope that you fill up on the feast. Get the tasters going and be ready for it. Um, you may have heard the story of Greyfriars Bobby, um, a little dog from Edinburgh. Uh, if not, I'll tell you it. It's a Sky Terrier. He became well-known in 19th century Edinburgh for guarding the grave of his owner. As the story goes, his owner passed away, and the little dog every day would go down to his owner's grave and sit there and guard the grave. Did this every day for 14 years until, sadly, the little dog passed away himself. An example, they, they've got a statue of him there, an example, and a little bar, Bobby's bar, an example of a little dog who was committed to his cause and was guarding his owner's uh, grave diligently. Um, has anyone read the play, or seen the play, I pity you, Waiting for Godot? One, Tim. Just, yeah? Uh, just quick, did you guys enjoy it? Good, thank you. Because I'm about to rouse on it, something chronic here. Okay. Uh, it's a play. I read the play when I was in high school, and it's unfortunately still vivid in my memory. Uh, there's two characters, Didi and Gogo, and basically it's uh, an entire play where they just, that's the, that's the scene, they would stand there the whole time and talk about what they're doing, which is not much, and they're waiting for Godo to return. Guess when Godo returns? He doesn't. He doesn't come, okay? I hated it. I hated it. It was so bad. It was The playwright himself said he's not sure what it's about. Um, I found it one of the most painful pieces of literature I've ever read in my life. And I've read a few, I'm not going to lie. Um, 
One interpretation of this particular play is that it explains the drudgery of the Christian life as we wait for God, who in fact never shows up. Okay? Now, these two stories I tell you are caricatures of the way some people live their lives waiting for Christ's return. One group, the Waiting for God group, they go on, bored out of their brains, not sure if anything's ever going to happen, caught up in endless conversation about it. They don't know what to do. They're a bit bewildered and befuddled. The other group are ferocious little terriers who defend the grave of their master. They have arguments about theological constructs. They, they make claims for essential purity and truth. But the thing is, as we wait for Christ's return, it's not about futility and boredom. And it's not about picking fights to defend our master who can't defend himself. Okay? It's not about either of those things. It's about a life of eager anticipation. It's about making the most of every opportunity that we have. And we do that in our own lives. We figure out what that looks like. We do that as a collective group as well, as a church. As a church, we have um, our little mission statement, which is we want to reach out with the good news. Okay? We want to connect, grow, serve with people. We're, we're based on the word. All these things actually help us uh, stay on track and wait for Christ's return. Um, none of them are independent of the other. They are all interdependent. Okay? Um, you know, you say, some people say, well, I, I want to serve, but I feel like I need to grow my faith first. Well, you're probably not going to grow much unless you're serving because you're designed as a human to be someone who serves God. So you can't be like, well, I can't serve till I've grown. It, it doesn't work like that. Or, you know, it, and it's not like you have to connect first and then grow and then serve. And then that's not how it works either, right? All these things work together. And the more you do of each one, the better you get at the other ones. Does that make sense? Uh, and the foundation is the word. We find in the word the way we should live. And so as we wait for Christ's return, it's essential that we have in our lives these things built in, that we are those who are, Serving God, connecting with others, looking to the word to grow, because all these things will help us to get the big things in place, to get the big picture under control. There's a well-known story about a university professor who wanted to make a point about how we make the most of our time. The professor stood before his class with some items in front of him. When the class began, without speaking, he picked up a large, empty jar and proceeded to fill it with rocks about two inches in diameter. He then asked the students if the jar was full. They agreed that it was full. So the professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured them into the jar. He shook the jar lightly and watched as the pebbles rolled into the open areas between the rocks. The professor then asked the students again if the jar was full. They chuckled and agreed that it was indeed full this time. The professor picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. The sand filled the remaining open areas of the jar. Now, said the professor, I want you to recognize that this jar signifies your life. The rocks are the truly important things, such as family, health and relationships. If all else was lost and only the rocks remained, your life would still be meaningful. The pebbles are the other things that matter in your life, such as work or school. The sand signifies the remaining small stuff and material possessions. If you were to put sand into the jar first, there is no room for the rocks or the pebbles. The same can be applied to your lives. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you will never have room for the things that are truly important. Okay, I'll come off there. Um, he waffles on a bit longer. Um, just everyone close your eyes for a second and just put your hand up if you are very busy in general. Probably most people. Okay, that's good. Okay, hands down, eyes open. All right, 
most of us feel like we're pretty busy, right? Um, and so we watch this and, and we kind of, we can resonate with it. But, but he's forgotten something, hasn't he? What's he forgotten? Or what does he not understand about life? No one picked up anything? There's a glaring mistake with this. Yeah, no mention of God at all in there. Which I guess the guy's not coming from a position where he understands that, so he's not going to put it in there. However, if we don't actually put the big rocks in, as he says, the, big, the important things first, then the other stuff doesn't fit. Yes. You thought the rocks were God? Oh, he said they were health and family and relationships, didn't he? Yeah. But they should be God, shouldn't it? It should be. So we've got to put in the important things first. And that's not at all to say that health and family and relationships are not important. They are all very important things, right? Um, but if God doesn't go in our jar first, now just, just work with the analogy, okay? I cannot tell you how many discussions I had about this after 8 o'clock. I heard you could put water in as well because it wasn't still full. <laughs> what if the jar was God? It doesn't matter, okay? The point is we're going to get the important things in place in life first, okay? Who cares what goes in the jar, okay? It doesn't matter. But actually, what goes in... It's about putting the important things in life in place first, and then there's space to get everything else in. We're all busy. We all know that. And we all get caught up in busyness and trying to fit everything in. And sadly, because we can't see God, we often think, oh, it doesn't matter too much. He'll fit around everything else. He's the water. We can put that in last. Whatever. It's not how it works, okay? We've got to get ourselves ready for Jesus' return. And other things will fit in naturally around that, okay? It's not a drudgery or a chore to wait for him. Not at all. It's actually just about living your Christian life day to day. All right? You don't need to make a placard and walk around with it. The end is nigh. Banging it futilely in the street, like that guy, Maz, that we saw a few years ago, that walking around Oatly with that big placard on. That's not, you don't have to do that, okay? That's not how it works. It's actually about living an authentic Christian life, being genuine in it, okay? How do I do that? Great. Read your Bible. It tells you. It's all there, okay? We could do it now, but we don't need to. It's all there. It's simple. Um, Look to share your faith, look to serve God, look to grow in your faith. All these things are important, yes. And they're all parts of a genuine Christian life where we're looking to serve God. And that's just how you live in anticipation of return. And then when he comes, if you're living that way, you're not going to be shocked. Oh, that's right. He's here. Thank goodness. It's ready. Some people think if I'm not prepared, all right, when I was a kid, some people, me, when I was a kid, I thought this way. I thought if I'm not actually thinking every minute, he could come back then I might not be ready. Yeah, you know, um, I was thinking, well, today could be the day. I've got to be ready. And so I would focus all that day on being ready. And then I'd wake up the next day, I'd forget. And then the following day, I'd be like, oh, I wasn't ready. I missed it. What if he'd come yesterday? I would have been in But that's not the point, is it? It's not about thinking it. It's actually just about living a genuine Christian life. And we do that because in Mark, Jesus shows us that we can look beyond the grandeur of the things of this age. As, as impressive as all those things we listed are, becoming a CEO of a company, all right? Um, I forgot everything else we just said before. But all those things were important, weren't they? Listen back to the tape, it's earlier on there. Um, all those things were important, and, and, and they're impressive achievements, weren't they? But yet they're not the big picture. We've got to be prepared for Jesus' return. We've got to trust in the Son, we've got to wait for Him. Let me pray that we'll do that. Dear God, we do thank you for your son, our saviour Jesus, our, our temple, if we will, who lays down his life that we might have life with you. And we thank you that you do send him to collect us to be with you. So help us now, Father, to, to be those who live authentic lives for your glory, anticipating Jesus' return. In his name we pray. Amen.